Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace that are ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your love. Your love is an electing love. Your love is a justifying love. Your love is a sanctifying love, and your love will one day be a glorifying love. Lord, we thank you that your love towards us is an electing love, that indeed you sought us and bought us with your redeeming love, and you loved us before we knew you, and all our love is due you. Lord, we thank you that it wasn't because of good deeds that we had done. It wasn't because of our unrighteousness or that we're better than anybody else. But Lord, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, that is just simply astounding and amazing that while we were still enemies of God, you loved us and gave yourself for us. Lord, we thank you for your justifying love that on the cross through faith, there's this great exchange that Jesus, you took all of our sins paid for all of sin's price. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You take away our sin and you give us the active obedience and righteousness of Jesus. Lord, yours is a justifying love in that the, by faith the verdict of the ages has already been rendered on our souls. We are not guilty because the debt has been paid in full. Oh Lord, we thank you for that love. Lord, we thank you for your sanctifying love that you're not done with us yet. Lord, I thank you that we are not yet what we will be. That the one who began a good work in our souls will be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. As I know that all of us are still works in progress. All of us still have indwelling sin in our lives. And how we have not loved you as we should and we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves and as Jesus has loved us. So, Lord, I pray you forgive us. You would forgive us of our sins, but, Lord, also that you would work in our souls so we can be more and more like Jesus every day. Lord, I thank you that your love indeed is a glorifying love as well, that one day that when Jesus returns at the trumpet call of God and the shout of the archangel and the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed and we will have everlasting life where there will be no more dying no more pain no more crying no more disease no more sickness no more allergies no more any of that lord but it will be glory in your perfect kingdom forever and ever and ever and we long for that day we thank you for your glorifying love and lord i pray that you would help us to be people who display your love to the people around us Father, I do pray that you would speak to us from your word as we open your book is evidence of your grace that you have spoken to us and it's written down so that we can know your will for our lives. And so, Lord, help us to hear your word today and not just to be hearers that forget about what we heard, but help us to be doers that put the word into action by your power, by the power of your spirit within us. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and grab a Bible and open it to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 1. And today I want to talk to you about how the American dream is meaningless without Jesus. So 
If you don't know where Ecclesiastes is, go and look at the table of contents, or it's right after Psalms and Proverbs, pretty close to the center of your Bible, or really just right of center in your Bible. And so that's where you can find the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and verses 1 through 11. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy what is good, but it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness, and about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born into my house. I also owned livestock, large herds and flocks, more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is truth. Your word is life. Lord, I thank you that in this passage you show us what so much of our nation seeks after to find meaning and purpose in life will only leave them empty. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see all the stuff of this world and this life in consideration of Jesus, in comparison of knowing Jesus and living for Jesus above all else. So, Lord, we thank you that this is here in the Bible and that we can gain wisdom from Solomon's pursuit. Speak to us as we unpack this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys, I've been thinking about the book of Ecclesiastes. I realized that really the book of Ecclesiastes is like so much of of country music today. (laughs) I'm actually a big fan of country music. I love country music. I'm not not so much of a fan of the new stuff. I'm not really into the bro country. I'm really into the old stuff like Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah. Like, he's awesome, man. That's good music there, the old stuff. There's a little bit of the new stuff that actually is, is fairly okay, is decent. One of them uh, that, that, I was, that I just was brought to mind as I was thinking of this passage is a song by, by Tim McGraw. And, uh, <laughs> and maybe you've heard of this, uh, of, this particular, of this particular song where he says, uh, the, the song is called Live Like You Are Dying. 
And in that particular song, he says, some, this talking, describing this guy who's in his 40s, who discovers, he gets the news from his doctor that, uh, that he only has a few weeks to live, or maybe a limited time, it doesn't really say how much, but he has a limited time to live. And so because of that, he, the chorus says, I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, and I lasted, I don't know how many seconds, like 2.8 seconds on a bull. You have to put the bull in there. The bull named Fu Manchu, right? And so, typical country music, right? And so, and then he goes on from there, and he says, then I, I love deeper, I cared more, I've spent more time with my family. And all of that is good. He lived life in light of the end. And here in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is going to do something similar. He's going to say, okay, if we are going to die someday, and this world is all there is, then I'm going to pour myself into pleasure. I'm going to go, and I'm going to climb the Rocky Mountains. I'm going to go, and I'm going to ride that bull. I'm going to go, and maybe not, but things like that. And he's going to go after pleasure to the nth degree. Maybe I can find meaning in this life. If, 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 if there's limited amount of life, live it up. Oh, you can pour everything that you've got into pleasure in this life. And what he's going to find at the end of that journey is that if all you have is pleasure, if all you have is the results of the American dream, then it will leave you utterly empty. And the end of the life lived for pleasure is futile and utterly meaningless, a pursuit after the wind. Without Jesus, the American dream is meaningless. Now, I take my title, actually borrowing it from Dr. Uh, Danny Aiken and his excellent commentary on this chapter. He entitles the chapter, The American Dream is Meaningless Without Jesus. I can't improve upon that particular title. Now, what is the American dream? The American dream, the word American dream, was coined in 1931 in a book by a man named James Truslow Adams. It's a book called The Epic of America, and he defined the American dream as follows. He said, he, it's the belief that anyone, regardless of where they were born or what class they were born into, can attain their own version, listen, own version of success in a society in which upward mobility is possible for everyone. The American dream is believed to be achieved through sacrifice, risk-taking, hard work, rather than by chance. So according to the American dream, what so much of our society pursues as this is what will deliver meaning in my life, success and meaning in life is found in the pursuit of entertainment, pleasure, projects, property, power, fame. That's living the good life, right? That's what will bring meaning to life, right? If we could just have all of that, it would be amazing. And yet, in our day, we live in the most prosperous nation in the world. In fact, probably the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. Many of the houses that are being built right here in Richland, right here in the Tri-Cities, if you went into those houses and compared that to the kind of facilities and the kind of amenities that Solomon even had in his day, you would rather live here than even in the richest king of the ancient world. Like, we have running water. I mean, he had aqueducts and stuff, but he didn't have like we have. It was not as clean as we got it. 
And so we have all of this stuff. We have all of this wealth, all of this good life. And yet, there is a line out the door of the pharmacy today for people who are trying to find happiness and they need antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicine to help them to just deal with life and to just cope with life in this nation that because of this dream that we have is supposed to deliver meaning and significance in our lives. But we're not finding it. It's not delivering. You can gain the whole world and lose your soul and it's utterly meaningless. A pursuit of the wind. Why is it that so many people in our nation who have achieved so much, why is it that we regularly hear of people dying by suicide who have seemingly everything that the world can offer? There's something missing. There's something meaningless about achieving all that we long to have in this nation. Defining success without God. Defining success without eternity. Defining arriving without knowing Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. The American dream is great. I, I think there's some great aspects to it. I really do believe that you can achieve through hard work and sacrifice. I think that's a whole lot better than trying to achieve through not trying and so I think there is something worthwhile in that. Working hard, sacrificing, getting after it, having wisdom. But I also know this, that the achievement of pleasure, fame, and stuff cannot deliver meaning. The achievement of pleasure, of fame, of stuff, of achievements cannot give you significance. Having these things without a deeper purpose is an exercise in futility. As another bumper sticker says, he who has the most toys still dies. <laughs> and so, what's the meaning of life? If you have all of this stuff, listen, every single one of you, after your dash on the tombstone, someday there's going to be a day written in. And then what will you have? What will deliver meaning to you on that day? Jesus once asked a question similar to what Solomon is asking here in this passage. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus asked this question. It's, it's a soul-searching question. He says, what will it benefit somebody if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? What will it benefit somebody if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Or what will anybody give in exchange for his life? The answer to Jesus' question, nothing. To, there's no benefit if you gain the whole world and, let you, and yet lose your soul. There's no benefit to it at all. Eternity is coming for us all. That date after the dash on your tombstone is coming for us all. Then what? Then what? That is the question that Solomon is on here in this passage. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon is going to pour himself into what today, from this perspective, from our perspective, in our context, we could call the American dream. The stuff that everybody, all the television commercials, all of the sports stars, all of the music videos, all of the magazine covers says, this is life. If you have this, you got it all. 
And if you have this, then you have achieved. Solomon, with all of his resources, all of his power as the king over Israel, is going to pour everything he has, all of his gold, all of his people, all of his resources. I'm going to pursue pleasure with everything that I've got. And what he's going to end up with is it's all meaningless. So in verses 1 through 11, we're going to consider today, we're going to consider his pursuit of pleasure. Next time, next week, we're going to consider his pursuit of knowledge and his pursuit of work. While we celebrate knowledge, of course, we did today with the graduates. While we celebrate work, I encourage you to work hard in your life, to be diligent for Jesus. That in and of itself won't give you meaning. And we'll talk about the knowledge and work next week. Today, I want to talk about pleasure. Two aspects that I want you to see from these 11 verses. First of all is this. The pursuit of the good life is meaningless without Jesus. The pursuit of the good life is meaningless without Jesus. So Solomon here is like a good scientist, and like a good scientist, he's going to go on and experiment to see if he can make a connection here. Is there a connection with satisfaction? Can I achieve satisfaction through the pursuit of pleasure? Can I, see, can I find meaning in life for the pursuit of delights in this world? Remember, under the sun says it over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's limiting his search to this world and this life. Can I find meaning by pouring myself into hedonism? I love what Douglas Sean O'Donnell said in his commentary. He says the following. He says, within the house of hedonism, there are many rooms, and Solomon tries to sleep in them that's what Solomon is doing in these 11 verses. Solomon adopts the philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And can I find meaning there? So in verses 1 and 2, he goes to the comedy club. Look at verse 2. He says there, I said about laughter, it's madness and about pleasure. What does it accomplish? So he's going to try laughter first, right? Everybody loves a good laugh. There's meaning there, right? I mean, if we could just be happy all the time, if we could just laugh all the time. Like, go to the club, go to Jokers, go to the comedy club and laugh because, like this guy said in the book of Proverbs, this is the very guy who in the book of Proverbs wrote the words, laughter is good like medicine. And so more laughter, more medicine feel better, right? There could be meaning in entertainment. All that is good. Yes, entertainment. Yeah, even last night I listened to a comedian. It was hilarious. It was so, so, so funny. Uh, I don't even have time to get into that. But... Um, <laughs> So it's not necessarily bad in and of itself, but it, it can only go so far. Eventually, the jokes get old and become dad jokes. <laughs> they don't go off into that either, right? <laughs> Eventually, the laughter dies down. The thrill wears out. Laughter is not evil. It's a good thing to laugh. I love to laugh. And it's a good gift that God's given us. But you can't laugh and be entertained to the meaning of life. Entertainment and laughter will not in itself lead you to find significance in your dash, in the life that God gives you. It's a good gift, but it's not the ultimate pursuit in our lives. So he can't find meaning at the comedy club, so he leaves the comedy club and he goes over to the bar. 
Verse 3 goes to the bar and says, can I find meaning there? Can I find meaning in the liquor aisle? Can I find meaning in the liquor cabinet? And so in verse 3, he says, I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. And so he leaves the comedy club. He goes to the bar. Now there's a disagreement in the commentaries on what's happening in verse 3. What is Solomon doing? Is Solomon like pursuing like a fine wine here? Like a fine wine, like trying to figure out, ah, I want to have my cellar full of the finest wine so that I can have exactly what would pair with each supper, exactly what would pair with each cut of steak so that he was more of a connoisseur of the, of the fine wines available in his day. Or, or is Solomon just getting sloppy drunk here in this passage? What's happening here? The answer, I believe, from my study of this passage is yes. (laughs) Solomon is pursuing both. He's first pursuing the life of the connoisseur, and he's also pursuing the life of the drunk to see if I can find meaning in drunkenness. Now, let me say a word about my view on alcohol. You might be curious about that. My particularly what I believe the Bible teaches, and I want to stick to the Scripture and what the Bible teaches. I myself am a teetotaler. I don't drink, and I haven't in, in many, 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 many years, ever since I've been in the ministry. And the Scripture is clear in the book of Ecclesiastes, or, well, Ecclesiastes, the book of Ephesians, the other, in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, it says this, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. So the Scripture is crystal clear that it is a sin to get drunk. Ephesians 5.18, crystal clear. Don't get drunk with, uh, with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of spirits we need to be filled with, amen? <laughs> now, the book of Proverbs says that it describes beer and wine as a snake in a glass. It's like a snake in a cup, and many there be that are bit by it, and it, ruin, it can ruin your life. Now, does the Bible ever say, thou shalt not, it is an absolute sin? Can I find a verse that says that? No, I can't. And so I can't give that kind of prohibition on that. However, I think there is a lot of wisdom to be had in just avoiding it. I can't give you a thou shalt not, but I can give you some experience. Because I not only know a 13-year-old boy, but I was the 13-year-old boy who watched my stepdad get drunk on vodka and hold my mom hostage. And I had to escape out the window, go to the neighbor's house, call the cops, and rescue my own mom and sister from that mess. I have watched what it can do to people. My own roommate and my best man at my wedding died a year and a half ago from alcohol poisoning. My age. I've watched it. Now, I'm not saying everybody ends up that way, and I know that. I know that. Not everybody ends up that way. But I've sat with so many families whose dad's a good old boy until that moment when he gets drunk and he takes off the belt and he takes out his anger on his family. I've been there. I've ministered to people like that that thought it was okay. Friend, watch out. 
it can destroy your life. And at the very least, what we can say from this passage is that there is no meaning that can ultimately be found there. If you're trying to find meaning in the bottle, if you're trying to find meaning in the can, it will not deliver that. It will not deliver meaning in your life. The beer commercials, all they're all lying to you because I've seen what happens. I was in the marching band in Oklahoma, which was like a big drunk fest, it seemed like. I, was not, I didn't partake in that, but I was there with some of the, the, like the night before the football games. And I've been with the girls when they were, thought they were having a good time, and they weren't at 3 o'clock in the morning when they were hunched over the toilet, barfing their guts out in the commodes. I've been there. I've watched it. And I can testify that you cannot find meaning there. If you're trying to find meaning in the pursuit of a substance, regardless of what the substance is, if you're trying to find meaning in the pursuit of substances, it will leave you empty. It will not deliver on its promises. Watch out. Solomon is giving us wisdom here. He's saying you cannot find meaning there. Comedy club doesn't deliver. The bar doesn't deliver. So in verse 4, he said, let's be productive. Let's get a hobby. And so he pours himself into gardening. Huh. I love gardening. I have like three raised beds in my backyard. Huh. And we are like eating the best strawberries I have ever tasted. Oh my goodness. It is so good that I see the sweet peas, sugar snap peas, they're ready to start be harvested and the tomatoes are growing up but they got flowers on them. I mean, oh, it's just so great. I, could, I think I've got a, a anyway, <laughs> beside the point, he's pouring himself into gardening but his, he doesn't have three raised beds. He has a whole garden of Eden that he's trying to plant here because he uses the word, I have every kind of fruit tree that yielded its fruit in season. It's the exact word Words repeated from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 describing the Garden of Eden. He's trying to replant and reclaim the Garden of Eden. He's like, y'all think you got an awesome garden. Solomon had the most amazing gardens. I think I have an amazing system where I tied into my irrigation in my yard and I don't even have to water my garden anymore. Oh no, he had, he had the most amazing aqueducts that you can still find the pools in Jerusalem to this day. They have found them and discovered these that Solomon made. He had it all. He had his gardens, better garden than you could ever build in Minecraft, and, and, and he has it all. Look at verses 7 and 8. Not only did he have the best hobbies, in verses 7 and 8, he says, I had more silver and gold than anyone. You think your 401k account, not this year, but if you think your 401k account was awesome last year, then Solomon's was amazing. I mean, he set the standard on fire. Like financial independence, retire early. Those people that try to retire in their 40s, he set the standard. He could do it. He said, I had the best 401k. I had the best hobbies. I had, in fact, I even had the best Spotify account. And if I liked a band on Spotify account, I bought the band. <laughs> and so he bought you too. He bought Tim McGraw. He bought whatever music you like. He bought Johnny Cash. He bought it all. But it didn't deliver every pleasure. In fact, he even mentions his concubines. He poured himself into sexual delights, sexual pleasures. His harem was huge. 
people today enslaved to internet pornography, so many have poured themselves into these kinds of things that they think will satisfy their soul, but it will not satisfy. Verse 10, he summarizes his pursuit of pleasure. He says, all that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all of my struggles. What did it yield in the end? Look at verse 11. When I considered all that I'd accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the winds. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. It didn't deliver. The newness and the novelty eventually wore off and left him empty. He eventually got bored and he eventually had to deal with his own thoughts. The law of diminishing returns was at work in the pursuit of pleasure and it still is. You cannot find the meaning of life in pursuit of the American dream. It's the stuff of music videos, magazine covers, money, mansions, laughter, party, drinking, feasts, gardens, sexual gratification. You can have it all and still be left wanting. And there's some of you who are tempted with these things. There's some of you who are tempted to think, that's where life is found. If I could just get all that, then I can have life. But Solomon here is warning us all, you cannot and will not find meaning and significance and life at the end of that rainbow. Because as soon as you get to that, the end of that rainbow, the sun goes down behind the mountains and it is gone. It all is a mirage and is an illusion. It cannot deliver on its promises. The pursuit of pleasure in and of itself is futile. Now, that brings us to point number two. Point number two is this. Find pleasure in God's good gifts. You might be surprised by that. <laughs> find pleasure in God's good gifts. But beware of making a good thing a God thing because it will become an enslaving thing. I think that's Solomon's point here in this passage. Find pleasure in God's good gifts, but beware of making a good thing a God thing because it will eventually become an enslaving thing. The point of this sermon is not, listen close, the point of this sermon is not fun is bad, parties are bad, gardens are bad, money is bad, sex is bad, God places you in a good world full of temporary delights to make you miserable, so go forth and be miserable for Jesus. <laughs> How many of you heard sermons like that? <laughs> oh yeah, I've heard sermons like that. That's not the Bible. God created a good world. He looks at the world after his creation and he says, it is very good. And he creates us with the capacity to enjoy God's good world. I like to garden. And that's a good thing. I, I, I'm weird. I like to mow the lawn. <laughs> 
And you're like, come over to my house and have all the pleasure you want. Right, okay. <laughs> I get it. I like to mow the lawn. Like, it leaves me alone in my thoughts, right? So nobody bothers you when you mow the lawn. <laughs> you mow the lawn. I love to go hiking. Those are good things and good enjoyments of God's good world. God gives good gifts and blessings to his people, and we should enjoy them. Praise God, amen? God has placed us in a world that he created that is good. You think eternity is going to be miserable? Oh, no. It's going to be everlasting life, a new creation. The Garden of Eden in eternal bloom. We will have access to the tree of life forever and ever and ever. Joy unspeakable and full of glory will be ours. It's not a sin to own a home. It's not a sin to have a garden. It's not a sin to be blessed financially. It's not a sin to enjoy hiking or backpacking or a good meal. It's not a sin to enjoy those simple gifts that God has given us. And sex between a husband and a wife is meant to be a good gift and a joy from God. It's not an ugly thing or a dirty thing that the world tries to make it into. It is a joyful, gracious gift from our God given in marriage between a husband and a wife. It is one of God's good gifts. But here is the problem. When we take a God-given good thing and make a small g God out of that good thing, then that good thing can become an enslaving thing. And that is because we have sinful natures and sinful hearts living in a world in rebellion against God. We take God's good gifts and use them to pop ourselves up as the ultimate arbiters of meaning rather than using those gifts to bring glory to God through His goodness in our lives. These things are good things, but they can become enslaving things, and that is the problem of what the pursuit of the American dream without Jesus at the center of our pursuit has become. We have convinced ourselves to define success in terms of stuff that simply will not last. If you gain the whole world and lose your soul, it is meaningless. Can you see the priorities here? The pursuit of pleasure alone will not last. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about this in verses 20 and 21. He says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, nor thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Psalm 1611, just so that you know God's not against pleasure. He says, you reveal to me the, the path of life. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures, real pleasures. The kinds of things that I think we are longing for, that we expect stuff of this world to deliver that kind of joy. It cannot deliver that kind of joy. Only Jesus can deliver that kind of joy that you are seeking that kind of significance you long for, that kind of meaning that you are searching for. Pleasure could be a good gift from God, but it is not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is pleasure in God himself. He is the ultimate treasure. I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. C.S. Lewis says the following. He says, most people 
if they really had learned to look at their own into their own hearts, would know that what they do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or for, first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality that longing that we have in our hearts that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world is put in your heart by God to help you to realize you were made for another world. You were made for another world. The world of forever. The world of eternity. And if you gain all of this and yet lose that, it is all futile. It is all meaningless. Give your life to the things that matter. Yes, enjoy God's good world, but do it in context. Do it in context of the greater pursuit of God's greater glory. And he will give you meaning in your life. Do you own your stuff? Or does your stuff own you? Is there anything that's part of this creation that has become a small g God in your life that is enslaving you to itself? And let me ask you, what Tim McGraw asked as well. What would you do if you knew you were dying? And you are. How would you live your life? And would you have any, would your answer have any significance for eternity? Would it have any significance forever? Let's ask ourselves that question. Are we giving our lives to the things that really Let's pause for a moment and pray. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, I encourage you, even right now, to trust in Jesus. Don't trust in the stuff of this world. Trust in Jesus. If you know if God's revealed something to you in your heart that you've been pursuing above God in your life, give that over to the Lord. Tell the Lord, you want, the Lord to, you want to deal with this with God even right now. That, Lord, you have not been first place in my life. I want to make you, I want to recognize you as first place, most important, my greatest pursuit. Reorient your loves even right now. What is it that you're pursuing? What is it that you're giving your life to? 